Take your Bibles, go to John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. So we're beginning this study, of course. Uh, the name of this is Fellowship of the Father and the Son, and this is our first sermon on 1 John. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. What is remarkable about this verse is that in a book that details what is necessary to gain fellowship with the Father and the Son, and a book which was written to confirm if a man has eternal life or not, that the emphasis is directly centered upon the personal, albeit spiritual, relationship the Apostle John had with Jesus Christ. It is thus he whom John hopes to expose the world to, and he whom John knows holds the key to gaining the eternal life of God. Ultimately, Christ is the word of life, that manifested form of God who leads to life. The reason that John gives Jesus Christ this title is because through him, God's knowledge of the way to gain eternal life is revealed. As the word, Christ is God's revelation to man, revealing also God's path to heaven. And Barnes on this verse, The Son of God may be called the Word because He is the medium by which God promulgates His will and issues His commandments. End quote. The reason that a man is saved by Christ is because He is the living Word of God. Ultimately, to hold Christ as Lord is to obey all of God's commandments. So that where previously, through the Mosaic Law, obedience to the law is what was purposed to lead men to life, now the Lordship of God's Son is how man can be eternally saved. Since Christ is the Word, in Him is God's revelation whereby men can be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 now. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The Greek word for confess here is homologeo. Its definition is to speak the same, to agree. Helps Word Study defines the word as from homo, together and lego, speak to a conclusion. Properly to voice the same conclusion, i.e. agree, confess to profess, confess, because in full agreement to align with, endorse. These definitions reveal that to confess Christ as Lord is to agree with God that the Son of God is Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios, which is defined as Lord, Master, Sir, the Lord. Helps Word Studies further defines the word as properly a person exercising absolute ownership rights. Lord, Lord. The origin of kurios is from kuros, authority. What we observe from these definitions of both confess and Lord is that to be saved, Jesus must be given full authority over the soul. Because God has given his son authority over all things, to be saved men must agree with God's transfer of divine authority to Christ and subsequently make him their Lord and master of their life. Thus, by accepting the word and yielding fully to Christ's present heavenly authority, this is viewed by God as subjection to his will for man. Christ's lordship over a man's life takes the place of needing to obey every commandment of God 
which was necessary in the Old Testament in order to be saved, which in fact is impossible simply because of man's weak fleshly ability to keep divine law. Barnes on this verse, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here it means to acknowledge him as Lord, that is, as having a right to rule over the soul, end quote. To make Jesus Christ your Lord is to give him full authority over your soul. By this it is meant that both Christ's word and his spirit must rule the inner being. If any reject this subjection to both Christ's words and Christ's spirit, then this reveals rejection of divine law and cannot result in receiving the salvation promised by God through his Son. It should be noted that to receive Christ's lordship partially is to receive him not at all. Thus, not until Christ is given full and complete dominion over our life can God's salvation be given to us. It is thus by obedience to the Son of God, via his word and his spirit, that produces true salvation for the soul. Hebrews 5, 9. And being made perfect in reference to Jesus Christ, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. That which was from the beginning, it is important to recognize that before we were, Christ was. And like the heavens and earth were created before man, so did Christ exist with God in the beginning. It is also at this time, before the world was even formed, that God's purpose for the saved came into being. Colossians 1.4 According he, God, hath chosen us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, God, in love. Barnes on this verse, in him, in Christ. The choice was not without reference to any means of saving them. It was not a mere purpose to bring a certain number to heaven. It was with reference to the mediation of the Redeemer and his work. It was a purpose that they should be saved by him and share the benefits of the atonement. The whole choice and purpose of salvation had reference to him, and out of him no one was chosen to life, and no one out of him will be saved. Before the foundation of the world, this is a very important phrase in determining the time when the choice was made. It was not an afterthought. It was not commenced in time. The purpose was far back in the ages of eternity, end quote. The Lord's predestination of his people is what makes Christ's salvation so secure. This was the son of God's purpose in coming into the world to save those purposed by God for heaven and has proven to be astoundingly successful. Well did Isaiah state that unto us or for our purpose a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Benson on Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is or shall be born. The human nature of the Messiah is here first set forth. He shall be the child born the Word made flesh, and that for us, not only for us Jews, but for us men, for us sinners, and especially for us believers. Unto us a son is given, or the son, namely of the virgin, spoken of in Isaiah 7.14, the Emmanuel, 
the Song of Solomon of God, so-called, not only on account of his miraculous conception, but because of his eternal generation. The Word who was in the beginning with God had glory with the Father before the world was, was loved by him before the foundation of the world, and by whom he made the worlds and created all things. This person, the Father's own Son, his only begotten Son, is given, set forth, sent into the likeness of sinful flesh. Though rich and in the form of God, made in the likeness of men, poor and of no reputation, given to our infallible teacher, our prevalent mediator, our almighty savior, our righteous ruler, and our final judge. Accordingly, the government of the church of the world, yea, of all things, for the church's benefit, shall be upon his shoulder, that is, upon him, or in his hands, all power being given to him in heaven and on earth. In mentioning shoulder, he speaks metaphorically, great burdens being commonly laid upon men's shoulders and all government, if rightly managed, being a great burden, and this especially being, of all others, the most weighty and important trust, end quote. Which we have heard. Here we have the beginning of what John reveals was the basis of his faith in the Son of God. It was what the apostle had heard Christ speak. We can tell the depth and nature of a man by the wisdom and words that proceed out of his mouth. In relationship to Christ, what he spoke revealed an understanding and an enlightenment of heavenly truths previously unknown to man. Truths like, for any to be saved, they must be born again, and that for a man to save his life, he must first lose it. And that he who believes upon the Son of God shall out of his belly flow rivers of living water. To John, Christ's words and the wisdom he spoke is what became the first proof that Jesus was in fact God's Son and God's revelation of himself to man, which we have seen with our eyes. Like Peter, John equally attested that he was an eyewitness to Christ's majesty, 2 Peter 1.16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. As much as John had heard Christ speak, equally did he have the same opportunity to observe Christ's person and the Son of God's walk in this world. Consequently, the apostle saw with his own eyes multiple instances of Christ's compassion, his divine power, and even observed Jesus in his resurrected body. Seeing was believing, and this is why there was absolutely no doubt that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. Other miracles John observed include Jesus feeding the 5,000 and his calming the sea, his casting out demons into a herd of pigs, and raises Jairus' daughter to life. Like Nicodemus, the apostle knew that no man could do these miracles or actually even one of them, except God was with him. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 2. The same Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. It was through observance of the Savior that proved to John and the other disciples that God was indeed with Christ and that Christ was in fact the Son of God. Benson on this, his miracles were his credentials, which we have looked upon, 
This implies not simply seeing the Son of God and all that he hath both said and did, but an even deeper contemplation that John and the other disciples experienced as they became illuminated to the wonderful identity of the Savior. Like Mary pondered the glory of the Son she brought forth into the world, so did the apostles marvel and were amazed at Christ's miracles. Verse 2 now. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it again in reference to Jesus Christ, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Ultimately, John realized that Jesus represented to the world the eternal life of God. In then Jesus' body tabernacled the eternal life of God. It was this eternal life that John sought to show and bear witness to, confirming Christ's own words that since he possessed eternal life, he could give it to those purposed by God to share with him. There is a great power held by the Son of God, such power also that he can give eternal life to any who through faith believe upon him. I give unto them eternal life is authoritative and agrees with Christ's purpose in coming into the world, so that if a man desires to acquire and share in the eternal life of God, then he must share personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is done by hearing Christ's words and obeying them, as well as believing on the Father who sent him. There is but one door, one access point, where sinners like ourselves can find hope of heaven. It is through the very one sent by God to reveal God's spiritual and eternal life more fully to the world. That which a man has, he can give. Jesus, as the Son of Man and the Son of God, can therefore give God's eternal life to as many as make him their Lord. 1 John 5.11 And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Barnes on this verse. And this is the record. This is the sum or the amount of the testimony which God has given respecting him. That God hath given to us eternal life has provided through the Savior the means of obtaining eternal life. And this life is in his Son, is treasured up in him, or is to be obtained through him, end quote. John chapter 6, verse 27 now. Christ's words, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. A man's labor, therefore, should not be merely regulated to feeding his body and the desires it produces, but rather should be primarily directed towards that spiritual labor which leads to the saving of the soul. It is this meat which is a knowledge of the Son of God and a pursuit of the higher spiritual realm that provides the opportunity for everlasting life. Barnes on John 6, 27. The meat that perisheth, the food for the supply of your natural needs, it perishes. The strength you derive from it is soon exhausted, and your wasted powers need to be reinvigorated. The meat which endureth, the supply of your spiritual wants, that which supports and nourishes and strengthens the soul, the doctrines of the gospel, that are to a weak and guilty soul what needful food is to a weary and decaying body. To everlasting life, the strength derived from the doctrines of the gospel is not exhausted. It endures without wasting away. 
It nourishes the soul to everlasting life, end quote. And show unto you that eternal life. This was the purpose of the apostles' earthly ministry, that all men might know that in Christ is life and that he is the light of all men, without which they can only stumble in darkness. 1 John 5.12 He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. On this one single maxim is contained the entire Christian gospel. If this were believed and relied upon, then very little else would be needed to be preached in attempting to bring others to salvation. It is also this question which all who profess to believe in Jesus need to ask themselves. Do I hold true belief in the Son of God in my heart, or do I merely know Christ's name in my mind? There is a great difference then between if a man only mentally knows the Lord's name and if he has given himself to allow Christ's full authority over his life. The answer to this question ultimately reveals whether men are saved or not. Verse 3 now. That which we have seen and declare unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. First John is a book which entails certain immovable truths necessary for spiritual fellowship with God and the Son of God who came to reveal Him to the world. These divine revelations cannot be compromised if a man truly desires sincere and genuine communion with both the Father and the Son. Each truth must be carefully considered and thoughtfully reflected upon simply because each will reveal what is necessary for spiritual connection to the higher, heavenly, and more holy spiritual realm of the Spirit. Minimizing or neglecting even one of these great revelations both can and will result in forfeiting fellowship with the Heavenly Father. He then who will not hear John's message, which is directly linked to John's own personal relationship and account of the Son of God, shall forfeit that fellowship with God which Christ came to offer. For this reason, this epistle is an indispensable book worthy of our highest interest and continued spiritual study. Ultimately, it was Christ who taught John, and it is Christ who has chosen to use John to teach us the path to gaining true and living fellowship with the Father. Verse 4 now. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. The Greek word for joy is carrot. Its definition is joy delight, teaching us that those who sincerely maintain fellowship with the Father through His Son will possess a joy and inward spiritual happiness not found anywhere else in the world. This is that same indescribable joy that Jesus said He would give to His true followers. John chapter 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Ellicott on this verse, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. The better reading is, that my joy may be in you. The joy thought of is that which Christ himself possessed in the consciousness of his love towards the Father and of the Father's love towards him. The brightness of that joy lit up the darkest hours of his own human life, and he wills that it should light up theirs. In the consciousness of their love to God and of God's love to them, there would be in them, as part of their true life, 
joy which no sorrow could ever overcome. They were as men with troubled hearts. He has told them of the true source of his peace. His own peace he has given to them. He tells them now of the source of his joy and has spoken the word that they may possess the very joy which was the light of his own heart, end quote. Though Christ suffered much in the flesh, there was a joy he possessed, completely foreign to his accusers, betrayers, and murderers. It is this joy that every believer of the Son of God will feel when in fellowship with God. Psalm 1611, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It is also when a man truly believes that he will experience for the first time in his life that joy and peace of God which only Christ can provide. Joy is, therefore, a spiritual fruit which is produced in a person's heart whenever faith is present and confident and trust in God is held. He, therefore, who genuinely exercises faith will experience joy in his soul, a spiritual joy that proves not only the existence of a heavenly Father, but also the true nature and disposition of heaven itself, teaching us that heaven is not a gloomy nor oppressive habitation, but rather is a place of supreme happiness, freedom, and delight. Spiritual joy is an element of the nature of God, and it is what all of heaven reflects. By believing on the Son of God, men can experience a portion of that joy, which will be their full possession when received into heaven. Joy is also aptly called the joy of the Lord because its source is the Lord.